Have you ever had trouble finding something to wear? You know, you're, you're out of town and you get invited to like a, a black tie evening gown type of event and all you packed were jeans and shorts and flip-flops. That's all you had. Or, or the flip side, you're out of town and you're invited to a jeans and shorts and sandals event, but the only thing you packed were your fancy clothes. You didn't have what you needed for the right event. Now, the reality is there's a big difference between finding the right clothes and finding clothes that fit. There's a big difference between those two things. Finding the right clothes and finding clothes that fit are not exactly the same thing. In the words of the late cultural philosopher C. Crosby Farley, you don't want to be a fat guy in a little coat. So there's a movement that you have to really think through when it comes to the way things fit. The United States Marine Corps has a uniform board. Their next meeting is scheduled for August. According to MarineCorpsTimes.com, at this meeting they will be bringing up and addressing some uniform changes in their policies. Part of the reason that they have these uniform changes is because of one thing in particular, and that is the seasonal uniform cycle. In 2008, Marines worldwide went to the same seasonal cycle. In the spring and the summer, they are to wear the desert camouflage. In the fall and the winter, they're supposed to wear the woodland camouflage. Now, the reason this policy is being looked at is because when you consider the fact that our troops live all over the world in different types of climates and different types of seasons at different types of the year, then maybe the same uniform is not always appropriate. For instance, it probably feels a little bit different in the middle of December in Germany than it does in the middle of December in Southern California. A little bit difference in the climate. And so they're looking at this policy. One of the things that is being proposed is that the troops should just wear their service uniforms all the time. That that's just the, the uniform of the day is the service uniform. Right now, currently, they are wearing the service uniform on Fridays. And so if this policy were to go through, then the camouflage would be used just for field work or training or for deployment. Now, why are they wearing it just on Fridays now? Well, again, according to MarineCorpsTimes.com, it's this reason. Service uniform Fridays were established in 2013 by then-Commandant General James Amos in an effort to improve Marines' professional appearance and crack down on overweight troops taking advantage of the looser-fitting utility uniform. There you go. So uniform, service uniform Friday is actually an unofficial Weight Watchers check-in every single week just to make sure that the uniform fits. But the uniform does need to fit, right? It's important for the uniform to fit. The uniform needs to fit the body. The uniform needs to fit the climate. And the uniform needs to fit the situation. And that's not something that's just true for our military. It's also true for us as believers. Spiritually speaking, our uniforms need to fit. We can't just wear church clothes on Sunday. We have to wear gospel clothes. We have to wear our salvation on the inside of our heart, and we have to wear our salvation on the outside of our lives. How we live, our words and our actions need to match. We need to live out the gospel inside of the church building and we need to live out the gospel outside of the church building. Well, what's outside of the church building? Well, outside of the church building is everything. 
Everything in life is outside of this building. Home, restaurants, grocery stores, drug stores, department stores, home improvement stores, candy stores, ballparks, amusement parks, vacation spots, work, and school. (laughs) Wait a second there, preacher. Did you just say I had to be a Christian at work and school? Wait a minute. That can't be right, right? No, actually it is right. In fact, the most strategic place outside of your home that your Christian uniform needs to fit is at work and at school. In other words, what we believe and what we say we believe about Jesus Christ and how we behave needs to be clearly seen at work and at school. So what does that look like? What are some principles that we can use to make our faith more real, to live out our faith? when we're on the job, and when we're at school. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters. What is a bond slave? Some of your Bibles just have the word slaves. Some of your Bibles just have the word servants. And all of these words apply. Bond slaves, servants, or just slaves. They all are interchangeable for this verse. A bond slave is someone in the ancient world who was either forced or by choice became the property of a master or owner. They were under the absolute authority of a master. Now, generally speaking, the ancient definitions of slave and master are terms that we know as historical terms, not as personal experience. None of us have experienced this in the way that we read about it in ancient times. But don't let that general note fool you. Slavery still exists, and it is bigger than ever. Back in December, Joe Carter of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission shared this. Modern-day slavery, also referred to as trafficking in persons or human trafficking, describes the act of recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining a person for compelled labor or commercial sex acts through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. He goes on to say, There are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than at any other point in human history with an estimated 21 million in bondage across the globe. And then he shares some numbers. For most of human history, slaves were expensive, the average cost being around the equivalent of $40,000. Today, the average slave cost around $90. Trafficking in persons is estimated to be one of the top grossing criminal industries in the world behind illegal drugs and arms trafficking, with traffickers profiting an estimated $32 billion every year. We may not feel it in our community, but the reality is slaves still exist, and it is bigger than ever. There are groups like the International Justice Mission and Samaritan's Purse that are working hard to try to end this practice in our world, to try to end this practice in our community. We may not think it's here, but it is right here in Colombia, particularly through the pornography industry. There are groups that are doing what they can to try to take the love of Jesus to these people who are in tremendous chains of darkness. And so I would encourage you to to pray 
and to support these ministries and other groups like this as the Lord leads you, as they try to shine the light of Jesus into this dark world. You might even want to gather some people from your neighborhood or even people from our church and maybe once a month just meet and pray specifically just for those involved in human trafficking. Or or maybe your Sunday school class might want to connect with one of these groups. You can find out more information on their websites at igm.org and at samaritanspurse.org. Slavery is still here, and it's, it's bigger than ever, and sadly, in some ways, it's even spreading and growing. But the type of modern slavery and, and human trafficking that's plaguing our culture is defined primarily by secrecy. It's a secret society, a secret world that escapes some of our notice. To Paul's time, it's a completely different type of thing. See, Paul's writing to his friend Titus around 60 A.D., Titus was living on the island of Crete at the time. And on the island of Crete, most homes would probably have domestic servants, domestic slaves. It was part of the culture. Historians estimate that there were 60 million slaves during the Roman Empire. That's almost half the population of the entire empire. Slaves in that day had a domestic relationship, not a corporate business relationship. You take a a house, a house might have hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people living within that household. And every person, slave and free, had a responsibility toward the economic productivity of that house. In other words, the economy ran through the home. Now things have changed today, right? We live in an economy where things happen through the business and through the company. It's an employer-employee relationship. But in ancient times, the economy ran through the house, and in those houses, most of those houses, particularly here during the time that Titus lived and Paul wrote, most of those houses had slaves and had servants. So how did a slave become a slave? Well, perhaps maybe their nation was conquered, and they were forced into slavery as part of who they were and what they did and and how their life affected Perhaps it was one of those things where not just their nation, maybe they committed a crime. And maybe in their crime, they were forced to live out the sentence of their crime by being a slave. They might have been born into a slave family even. Or perhaps they sold themselves into slavery. That sounds crazy, right? Why in the world would someone sell themselves into slavery? Well, in ancient times, it actually could be an honored and even accepted position for some. Cooks, barbers, teachers, butlers, even doctors were part of the ancient slave system. And so for many people, to be a slave was the only way you'd ever get an education. It was the only way you'd ever learn a profession or a trade. And at the very least, you would have your household needs supplied. You'd have food and shelter and clothing. So Paul's writing to a time and a place that may be foreign to us, but this was the picture of what it looked like. But even though there might be some education or a trade or a profession, even though the daily supplies might be met, make no mistake, to be a slave at any time in history is to sometimes be seen as not a human, to be seen as just a a tool to do a job. And when you can't do the job anymore, you are simply thrown away. So it's not a small thing that Paul actually addresses bond slaves directly. He he talks directly to them. Why is that not a small thing? Well, the reason it's not a small thing is because what it shows us. First, it shows us Paul expected there'd be slaves in the church. 
He expected that there would be Christian slaves, that when the church gathered together in those early churches, there would actually be slaves there. Even one writer said this, it's not a far cry to assume that there were some slaves that might have been pastors and elders in the church. And when their masters came to church, they were actually under their submission. See, there were slaves in the church. The second thing it tells us by Paul directly addressing them is that he understood that slavery was part of the culture. Paul does not write here against slavery. He doesn't write a big treatise against slavery. Some people have a real problem with the fact that the Bible doesn't just come out and condemn slavery. But it also does not condone slavery. And if you look throughout history, including right now, the people who have been on the forefront of rescuing people from the evil ends of slavery, are Christians. They have been believers at the forefront, doing all they can to bring freedom, not just spiritually, but also practically. Paul's not making a case against slavery because for Paul, he had one purpose. In fact, the same is seen in Jesus. Paul did not believe that social reform was the final thing and his final goal. In fact, Jesus in no way preached and taught in a way that said that social reform was what he was all about and why he came. From human trafficking to the taking of an unborn life to many other social evils, we need to be the kind of Christians who pray and who work and who give and who act and who go. We need to be engaged in those types of things that dishonor our Creator and dishonor His creation. But we also have to back up and remember why we actually engage with sin and why we actually engage with evil. You see, there is a higher goal. You see, one day society as we know it will cease to exist. Things will not be like they are. The choir sang it very interestingly. Newton put it this way, the earth will dissolve like snow. Life as we know it one day will not be anymore. So there has to be a higher goal than just reforming family values. There has to be a higher goal than just bringing about social reform. So what is that higher goal? What is this higher goal that led Jesus Christ to volunteer himself to be executed for our sin even though he was completely perfect and innocent? What is this higher goal that would lead the Apostle Paul for most of his adult life to be beaten and whipped and thrown in jail and left half dead. What is this higher goal? Well, the higher goal was and is the gospel. The higher goal is the gospel. The higher goal is that men and women and boys and girls would have the glory of God capture their souls because they were lost forever and without That's the higher goal. That's the goal that we should have as believers today. That is our primary goal, and it is the primary goal of the church. The primary goal of the church is to make a really big deal out of Jesus so that people might be saved, so that people might be rescued, so that people might have hope. And how do we go about doing that? Well, it starts with our attitude. This is what Paul said to the church at Philippi. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is is gain. Paul says, so whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, the definition of my life is Jesus Christ. 
Think about every t-shirt, every sweatshirt, every sign in your front yard, every bumper sticker on your car. Think about how you use your time. Think about all the different things that you love in life. Is the definition of your life Jesus Christ? Paul said, you know, when it comes to my life, whether I'm alive or dead, the purpose of my existence is Jesus Christ. He defines who I am. I look to no other. The gospel is what defines our existence. See, Paul knew that social reform was not going to be the answer. And he knew that because that's exactly what Jesus modeled for him. You see, Paul is doing the same thing Jesus did because the reality is social reform will not save a person's soul. And social reform will not satisfy a person's soul. Only the gospel, only the gospel does this. David Curtis writes this, The early church was concerned not to bring about political or cultural change per se, but to change the heart of man through the preaching of the gospel, that the life and reflection of Christ might be brought into society, heralding change not by law, but by the Spirit. The message of the gospel isn't about altering a man or woman's natural, physical circumstances, but in altering a person's relationship to God. You see, being saved doesn't mean that all of your natural circumstances are going to change. Being saved doesn't mean that, you know, miraculously you're going to be healed of every disease that you have. But this is what being saved does mean. It means that your soul is safe and your soul is satisfied. And that is not a small thing. Fanny Crosby, she lost her physical sight when she was just six weeks old. Can't even imagine that. Six weeks old and she went completely blind. Forty-eight years later, an acquaintance of hers, Dr. W.H. Doan, stopped by her house and asked her if she could write some words to go along with a little melody that he had composed. In 20 minutes' time, she had written three verses and one chorus. These are the last two verses. Safe in the arms of Jesus, safe from corroding care, safe from the world's temptations, sin cannot harm me there. Free from the blight of sorrow, free from my doubts and fears. Only a few more trials, only a few more tears. Last verse. Jesus, my heart's dear refuge, Jesus has died for me. Firm on the rock of ages ever my trust shall be. Here, let me wait with patience. Wait till the night is o'er. Wait till I see the morning break on the golden shore. On February 12, 1915, after 94 years of seeing Nothing. Fanny Crosby saw that morning break on that golden shore because her spiritual eyesight never failed. Paul is writing to people who had a difficult life and he's wanting them to see that that being saved means that in the most difficult and the most dark trial of your life, 
On the worst day of your life, on the worst hour of your life, you can still have hope and you can still have joy. How? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are saved, you are no longer condemned before God. If you are saved when you stand before God one day on judgment day, you do not have to worry about being eternally punished. That is the higher goal. That is the message that satisfies. No condemnation. And to hear the words, not guilty. Not guilty. Why? Because we're great people. Because we know how to fix cars and bake cobbler. Because of Jesus. That's it. That's the only reason there's no condemnation because of Jesus Christ. See, Paul knew that there were going to be bond slaves listening to this letter. He knew that at the church, when Titus gathered the believers together, there were going to be slaves and servants there. And he knew how discouraged they would be. And he wanted to encourage them. He wanted them to know that they had hope. What he really wanted them to know is that they were safe. He wanted them to know they were safe, and they were safe forever. And so because of the safety, because of the satisfaction of their salvation, Paul gives them some instructions on how they need to live as bond slaves. And the first thing he says here is what? Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters. They were to submit to their master, their boss, their teacher. In almost every corner of life today, we are being screamed at, fight for your rights. And so a proper attitude of submission, a biblical picture of submission, is not popular in any way, shape, or form. In fact, most of the time our culture is encouraging us when when you're not getting your way, when things aren't going the way that you think they should go, whether you're right or wrong, then you need to fight the power. You need to go after somebody. You need to undermine somebody in authority. You need to challenge somebody in authority. You need to challenge your teacher. You need to challenge your boss. You need to challenge your parents. You need to challenge the church leaders. You need to challenge authority. We really don't see that from the Bible. Really at all. Now, Paul is not saying just blanket authority. You know, he's not just saying, oh, obey anything and everything that you're ever asked to do. No, that's not what he's saying at all. If someone in a position of authority over you is engaging in activity that is directly dishonoring to God, or if they're asking you to engage in activity that is directly dishonoring to God, you can't cooperate. You can't go along. And listen, not cooperating makes things really uncomfortable. And not cooperating might bring about some really unpleasant circumstances and consequences. But you can't cooperate when God is being directly and emphatically and publicly dishonored. What Paul is saying is not a blanket to all authority. What he's saying is this. Don't be that guy. Don't be that lady. You know, don't be the loud, obnoxious person who's always fighting against authority at every turn they possibly can. Nor be the quiet, obnoxious person 
behind the scenes stirring up as much trouble as you can against all authority. Don't be either one. What Paul's saying is this, just, just be the person that people trust. Be the person that those in authority know is you're just going to do your job. You're going to do your work. And for the most part, you're going to do your work to the very best of your ability. I think you know this, but just in case you don't, there's no such thing as a perfect job. And there's no such thing as a perfect school. It doesn't matter if you work for a Christian business and have a Christian boss. It doesn't matter if you go to a school that has a Christian principal and a bunch of Christian teachers. There is no perfect job and there is no perfect school. Now, hopefully we can all experience a lot of great things at school and a lot of great things at work. But what we can count on is that there will be struggles and there will be difficulties at work and in school. I would imagine all of us at some point in time will think about having better pay and better hours and more time off and less homework and less group projects. But what if that doesn't happen? Well, if it doesn't happen, then Paul's instructions are pretty helpful. They're pretty simple. Just, just do your job. Do, do your job to the best of your ability. And as long as God's not being directly dishonored, then cooperate and honor those in authority. And when should we do that? Look at the next part of verse 9. In everything. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. All the time. Not just on Monday morning, but at 4.45 on Friday afternoon. Don't pick up your pencil just because the teacher is walking by. Don't start typing on your keyboard just because the boss is walking by. Don't do a great job in the office and then leave your junk all over the break room. Don't be a terrific mathlete and then be a lazy goof in gym class. And likewise, don't be a terrific athlete and be a lazy goof in math class. Did I say that right? I said gym class, right? Gym class, math class? Okay. Because that would make no sense if I just switched those up because it would all be math, which is not really my subject. I wasn't a lazy goof, but it's just not my subject. Paul says in everything because he wants us to know that we really just kind of need to do our job all the time. We need to do our best all the time. There's never a time we go, ah, I don't have to do that much. See, as believers, that never can cross our mind. As believers, we have to give everything because we are not working as to our boss or our teacher. We are working as unto the Lord. Next, Paul says we also need to be well-pleasing. Look, you cannot please everybody all the time. Don't even try. But what you want to do is you want to be the kind of person that works in such a way that when it comes to somebody saying, well, one of our best employees, one of our most helpful people, one of our most positive people, well, that's, that's so-and-so. When it comes to extra credit points or awards or promotions or raises, you, you kind of want your name to be a name that would naturally pop into the conversation. Not because you're arrogant and you want an award or a raise, but just because the quality of your work and your attitude is seen. Next, Paul says, not argumentative. Don't talk back. Don't mouth off. Don't hassle. Don't be the person that's negative about everything all the time. Don't be that person. In fact, the normal attitude of our life as a Christian in the classroom and in the workplace needs to be that, generally speaking, most of the time, we're the positive, helpful, cooperative person. If you're not, then you're displaying the wrong Jesus. 
at work and school and church and home and everywhere else. It doesn't mean that life has to be perfect. It just means that our salvation means something. That when we sing a song about knowing Jesus, it matters at 3 o'clock on Monday afternoon. It matters in traffic at 5 o'clock on Wednesday. It's not just something cute we do in church on Sunday morning. But our salvation actually makes its way into our life, and especially in how we talk. Next, he says, not pilfering. This is stealing. It's not just any old kind of stealing either. It's creative stealing. Your boss or your teacher sends you to the donut shop, get you, you're supposed to get a box of donut holes for them. And you're on the way back, and you're like, ah, there's a bunch of holes in there. They're not going to miss one of them. Or you're sent to the butcher to, to get you know, 16 pounds of ribeye cut into steaks, and you take the smallest one and slide it in your cooler bag in the trunk, put a little ice on it before you leave the parking lot. It's creative stealing. It's, it's not just boldly doing things. It's, it's kind of casually behind the scenes taking things that you really shouldn't take. It might be making a cheat sheet on your hand before the test. It might be cooperating with people who have stolen the answers to the test. It might be taking a, a ream of paper from the copier room to take home so your kids can color and draw and put things on the fridge. I read a statistic one time that said white-collar crime, things just like that, taking paper and pens and pencils, cost the United States billions of dollars every year. It might be that you're making unnecessary repairs if you're a repair person. It might mean that if you're in a business where you're in charge of the, the price fixing, that you are actually overcharging for things. There's a lot of different things that fall under the category of not honoring God and actually taking something that is not yours. Paul says you don't need to steal. You need to be the kind of person that people just trust they know you're going to do your job, and you're going to do it well. And they also know that you're not going to steal to get your way, nor are you going to steal to feed your greed. And so now he gives us something opposite. So what's the opposite of talking back and mouthing off? What's the opposite of stealing? Paul says in verse 10, but showing all good faith. Showing all good faith means this. It's not just that the people you work with or the people you go to school with or your teacher or your boss would see you doing a good job. It's not just that they would trust you, but they also are confused by you. <laughs> They're intrigued with you. They're interested in you. Why is this guy happy? Why is all this going wrong in her life and she still comes to work with a pretty positive attitude. They want to know what makes you tick. Stephen Cole writes this, If a slave behaved as Paul sets forth here, he would have stood out from the crowd. Most slaves resented their lot in life and fought back with a sulky attitude, an insolent tongue, petty thievery, or trying to get by with as little work as possible. Yet none of us have any familiarity with that sentence, Right? That didn't connect with any moment of high school, middle school, or any day on the job, right? Cole goes on to say, the same is true of many workers today, but Christian workers should be obviously different. So what is the obvious difference? Paul tells us, last part of verse 10, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. See, the obvious difference is that you are wearing the Christian uniform, and that the uniform actually fits. 
that when it comes to how you function in life, what you say you believe and how you behave, they, they actually are kind of the, the same thing. We can't always say that. We aren't perfect. We will mess up. But what is the pattern? Are you the person that when you leave the restaurant, the waitresses go, every week they come in and complain about everything? You don't need to be that person. At least don't call yourself a Christian. <laughs> if you're going to be that person every week and complain about everything, then just don't let them know you go to church here, okay? It would really help us out a lot. <laughs> the whole picture of the gospel is not that we're trying to do good works. It's that we have a great Savior. And our hearts are compelled to live for Him, not because we have to, but because we get to. You see, if you get good grades in school, the primary goal in doing that is not for you to get into a good college or one day get a good job. That is a huge lie of the American dream. That's not the primary goal if you're going to call yourself a Christian. No, there's got to be a higher goal for good grades. And if you're going to do a good job at work, the primary goal in that cannot be just to get more vacation days or a better pay raise. There has to be a higher goal if you're going to be a Christian. And the higher goal is what? The higher goal is the gospel. There, there's never a time where this is not always the higher goal. We have the greatest news in the universe. See, the higher goal is to find a way for people to see and know and hear that there is life after death. That they can live forever. That they can see and hear and know there's a way to be rescued. There's a way to be safe and that there is hope and love and joy that is very real today, but it is also real forever and ever and ever. That's the goal. A little girl was talking to her mom after church one day. She said, Mom, she said, the pastor's sermon confused me today. She said, well, why is that, honey? She said, well, he said that God is bigger than all of us. Is that true, Mommy? Well, yes, yeah, sweetie, that's, that's true. Well, then he said that God lives inside of us. Is that true, Mommy? Yeah, sweetie, that's, that's true. Well, well Mommy, if, if God's bigger than us, and if he lives inside of us, wouldn't he show through? Yeah, he would. In our homes at school, at work, and everywhere else that we go. May the light of the gospel shine through our lives always. Let's pray.